A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello movie truthers, welcome to this week's Truth and Movies. I'm David Jenkins. I'm Hannah Strong. I'm Sophie Monks-Kaufman. And on the show this week, we're coming to you live and in person from Cannes in south of France, where we're all attending the self-proclaimed world's greatest film festival. As such, this episode will have a bit of a Cannes flavour, but we'll also be looking at one big new UK release, Terence Davis's Benediction on the life and loves of World War I poet Siegfried Sassoon. We're also going to give a grilling to the new film by Oscar-winning French filmmaker Michael Hasnavicius, whose blood and sick splattered latest, Final Cut, is a remake of the brilliant Japanese meta-horror, One Cut of the Dead. Finally, we'll be taking in Scarlet, the new French-language drama by Italian director Pietro Marcello, who listeners will hopefully remember when we rhapsodised about his previous film, Martin Eden. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. That that little opening is nerve wracking. It's uh, precarious trying to read a read a laptop and mm. uh, you know check you guys for the for the for the lols. <laughs> so yes, we we are currently in Cannes. Um, maybe Sophie, could you could you maybe start off by giving us giving the the, the listener an idea of exactly where we are, what we're doing, um, a bit of colour about the festival as well. Okay, so we are in the French Riviera. Um, home of a lot of the nouveau riche. There are lots of small dogs, lots of yachts, lots of designer stores, and then lots of very scruffy journalists who descend for their pre- premier art house film festival Guilty. of the world. Um, it's the 75th edition of it. And I thought it was funny, silly, that in the opening ceremony last night, they beamed in none other than uh, President of the Ukraine, Zelensky, I'm sure he has better things to do, uh, but he he spoke for quite some time. So I guess that's the cinema that's can trying to announce its global relevance and um, to yeah. add untranslated for for English listeners. So it wasn't that his his speech was unengaging, more that we had no idea what was what was going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I guess that is also in, indicative of the fact that the Cannes Film Festival kind of have this constant attitude of you are simply lucky to be here and we we want we want you know most other festivals would translate into english but they did not feel the need to and uh hannah this is your second or third festival is it this is my third one now i feel like a a, a seasoned pro at and, this point and how has it changed over 3 years is it because <laughs> obviously they had the uh, they had to make some 
fairly big changes uh, during the pandemic. And um, does this feel like a normal festival this year? Yeah, I think it feels um, fairly close to the 2019 edition. Uh, I guess the the big change, obviously, is the tickets, which we're not going to go into because it's incredibly boring. Um, but they, you know, anyone that hears about Cannes hears about the endless queues, which is not something that we've had to do in the past two years, which is lovely. Um, in terms of kind of the general atmosphere. I mean, we're only on day two, so it's kind of hard to judge, but it does feel a little bit less manic at the moment. We'll see how I feel on day five when everyone is scrapping over tickets to the David Cronenberg film. But, you know, the, I think the, the, the city is kind of um, never changing in a way. It's always the same kind of um, tourist trap restaurants and, as Sophie mentioned, so many tiny dogs. Um, and it's kind of reassuring. You come back and you're like, oh, yeah. Within a day or so, you've got your bearings, you know where you're going, you can say, oh, I'll meet you at X place, and people kind of know what you're talking about. So yeah, very very nice to be back here. But on the note of the Animal Kingdom, we wanted to pay our respects to... (laughs) A a fallen soldier. (laughs) Indeed. This is the most visceral thing that we are likely to see, including Cronenberg. Should we give a a listener warning here before you uh, go into this door-soaked anecdote? Yeah, this is 18-rated, I would say. I feel like if anyone's seen The Lighthouse, it's, you know, on a a level with that. Lighthouse, IRL. It's body horror for animals. Basically, um, we witnessed a pigeon being... what seemed to be just in the process of being pecked to death by a vicious seagull. And Hannah and I were watching, and there were five German tourists watching, and we all just, it was like car crash, we could not look away. We and, kept saying we should look away, and we couldn't look away. And just as it seemed like things were about as bad as they could get for the pigeon, a bus rounded the corner. And from the from this perspective of a cinema goer, it was pure spectacle, pure dramatic tension. What had happened to the pigeon and the goal? So the bus went past, we couldn't see. And then the bus fully passed, and we saw just like tyre tracks over the pigeon, and... <laughs> it was and gone. The, the goal returned. So what's what's the metaphor here? <laughs> uh, existence is suffering. <laughs> Life is chaos, hostility, and murder. So this, That's so quote. This, this pigeon got away before the queues and the ticketing system could uh, ruin it. It was. It, it was. You know. You have to wonder when that's the first thing you see getting off the bus. Is it a kind of metaphor for what we're about to experience? (laughs) Is it a, like, get out of town and never come back warning? (laughs) Beware the eyes of March. Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. So that's going to cast, that pigeon is going to cast a long shadow across the festival. It was was very, like, richly cinematic, though. It was. There was a a first act, a middle act, and a closing act. And I'll confess to some bloodlust myself, because I was sleep deprived and it really woke me up. Sorry, I on, the, on, on that gory note, could, so can as as I, as I mentioned before, they like to talk up how great they are, how big they are. And oh, well, they, they are. love that, and um, and you know, in a way, they are. But <laughs> could you maybe explain why? Why why is it so important that we are here and representing Little White Lies? And is, is it something we could just skip and it would be fine? Um, I think for someone like Little White Lights, who have always kind of prided ourselves on championing um, art house cinema, independent cinema, as well as kind of bigger, more mainstream films, um, our mission statement goes kind of hand in hand with Cannes' mission statement, which is um, to kind of 
bring the best cinema that the world has to offer to a kind of global stage. Whether or not they do that every year is is very much up for debate. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think any kind of cinephile who really cares about the craft of cinema, but also a little bit the pageantry of cinema, it is a kind of... Um, it's like one of the th- top ten things to do you di- do before you die as a, a cinema lover. And we always come out of it, I think, having so many ideas of things we could do in the future, future issues, future interviews, features. It's a very good, I think, bellwether for kind of the year to come. And obviously we're in a massively fortunate position to be able to do it. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is work. We do we're spend, on business. We do business. spend a lot of time frantically running around frantically filing copy very sleep deprived and loaded on so many carbs we can't walk um so you know it it is one of the kind of great joys of the job but it is it's still a job (laughs) well i'm gonna whisk you out of the french riviera briefly so we can talk about um our first film this week which is terence davis's benediction Benediction is the story of Siegfried Sassoon, the famed British poet who was sent to a psychiatric facility for his anti-war stance during World War I. He had affairs with several men while being closeted and developed a crisis in faith when he converted to Catholicism. So, Benediction. Um, Sophie, could you maybe start by giving us um, a, little, a little kind of uh, intro into Terence Davis? who he is, what his thing is, and how, and maybe how this film fits into his, uh, his storied oeuvre. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, first and foremost, Terence Davis is obsessed with the past. He doesn't feel that he belongs in, in the present. Um, and all of his films, bar none, have been set in the past. Uh, whether, they're, whether they're documentaries about his own childhood or biopics, about poets this is not the first poet biopic he also made a quiet passion um about emily oh my god i've just forgotten her emily Dickinson. wow that's a sleep deprivation already <laughs> um so but his films are always very sort of elegaic always shot through with melancholy very rich emotional experiences um and they're all in a sense like very nakedly autobiographical whatever form he's working in because he's very unabashed about his own feelings of just chronically being a failure like he works on in the margins of cinema even though he's the kind of director that we revere and our readers enjoy like he's someone who struggles to get every film made he you know and I think he just sees himself as a failure, <laughs> and uh, so he makes he makes stories about characters who also struggle with feeling like a failure, also struggle with relationships. Like he's he's a gay man, he's famously celibate um, because he said he thinks he's too ugly for sex. I mean, he says all these heartrending negative things, and then makes these films that are like just the kind of most melodramatic interpretations of those negative emotions, but also married to, like, very detailed, painstaking, beautiful image-making. Is that a fair summation? That's a very fair summation, I think. Yeah, you, yeah I think you nailed that. Um, Hannah, can I, can I go over to you and, 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 and ask you about Benediction in a bit more kind of close detail? How, how do, is this a kind of... Is this your standard-issue biopic? Oh, very much not. I, I mean, as Sophie's kind of said... Um, 
he's Terence Avery is a very idiosyncratic filmmaker, and um, I, I think we've come to expect that it would it was never going to be a conventional kind of uh, hagiography of Siegfried Sassoon. And I think one of the delightful things about the film is that um, <laughs> we have this kind of um, dichotomy between Jack Loudon's portrayal of Siegfried Sassoon and Peter Capaldi's portrayal of Siegfried Sassoon. They play him at kind of very different stages of his life. And um, mileage may vary on, on uh, the latter of those two performances, uh, but presenting the idea of the kind of the past in conflict with the, the present within context of Siegfried Sassoon's life anyway um is you know a, a really kind of interesting um way of presenting information without going down the traditional chronological route with which I think so many biographies kind of fall back into that and it becomes very formulaic and quite um you know quite tedious and I think especially with a British war poet <laughs> um it would be very easy to kind of uh, go down that route and uh, Siegfried Sassoon, obviously, you know, is, is someone that there's been kind of already a lot written about his life and a lot um, kind of uh, lightly fictionalised. I mean, there was the whole, like, Regeneration trilogy, which was about uh, Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, which I was forced to read <laughs> during high school and didn't like very much. Oh, I read it and I did like it See, during high school. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, no, I, I went into this kind of, I did a history degree, so um, very much kind of up my alley in terms of things that I'm interested in and um, was very pleasantly surprised at what a kind of, a, a light touch, I guess, um, Davies has. He's, he, you know, he's an incredibly um, empathetic, empath, empath, empathetic, empathic, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, filmmaker, but doesn't kind of, I think, feel the need to, um, you know, go for kind of like total, like, uh, you know, um, string quartet kind of uh, over the top, look at, you know, look, look at how things were back in the day, you know, type of uh, um, filmmaking. And with this film in particular, I think like he's assembled such a kind of amazing cast to play these like very kind of... Um, iconic figures within British history and British arts um so yeah I was very I mean I, I wasn't expecting a traditional bi biopic from him and I'm I'm very glad that that expectation was met well a lot of his early films that he became kind of initially famous for like um Distant Voices Still Lives and The Long Day Closes The Long Day Closes is just his masterpiece it's the most beautiful film I mean and those films are like they're essentially experimental films in that they're non-narrative and they have these kind of episodic structures that are based on how memory works and mm. how kind of people leave an impression on your mind and the order in which that happens. And I, I wonder, does this? I, I, I mean, I, I maybe felt that this film does. You know, you could you could tell that this was a Terence Davis film if you'd have seen those those early films because it doesn't have it doesn't try to cleave his life into a very neat three-act drama and is more episodic. Do you, do, do you think this has that kind of experimental touches to it? Certainly it does. And, you know, I interviewed him for Little Way Lies and he was talking about what he left out 
and he left out like Siegfried Sassoon loved a bit of the old fox hunting and Terence Davis was like well I think that's barbaric I wasn't going to include it and so it's like his his decision making process is more intuitive rather than a kind of like I'm gonna just include everything and yeah that's like it's like that's like trust in the experimental approach that's I don't know if it feels quite as nakedly his as you know like you say the long day closes and distant voices still lives but you you can see his fingerprints all over it he's talked about the autobiographical elements of this film because it seems to me as well that when he makes these literary adaptations or these these sort of biography biography films whether it's you know the house of mirth or um you know as you say as we talked said before emily dickinson there's always like it's about me and this, and this, this one also, I, I, I think, is about him as well. <laughs> Certainly, it is, and he's made much of the fact that he disavowed the Catholicism of his youth, and so now he's dealing with a character who's gone in the opposite direction. Who's so desperate for meaning in the autumn of his life that he's converted. Um, so I think some of his bitterness and cynicism about Catholicism has made its way into the film in the form of the title. Like, when you know how he feels about Catholicism, the fact that the film takes its name from a Catholic practice seems very sardonic. Mm. It means that he doesn't really think that Sassoon's going to get the redemption he's looking for. <laughs> Hannah, can I ask you also, I, I'd, be, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the actor Jack Lowden. I mean, he, he, he's kind of been up and coming for a while as... Is he still up and coming, or is this is this the? Has he, has he come? Has he just been? <laughs> finally came, come? Yeah. I'm trying to think what else I I would have seen him in. Because he, he was in Dunkirk. Oh, of course, yeah. He, he, he always Who seems, wasn't he, though? He, he, yeah. he always seems to play those every kind little of, yeah, World War Two era yeah. types. Yeah, um, someone who's to let the man make a current movie. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, someone who kind of was on my radar. I think maybe because you know, in the UK, there's like ten young. British actors and you hear about them constantly um I was excited to see him in this uh I think that first kind of still they released of him uh, on the train platform was very just kind of it was a, a very strong advert for the film and um yeah I think you know he's um within the film he, he the character of Siegfried is someone that life kind of certainly initially just seems to kind of happen to in a way and these people come into his life which affect him massively um and he seems to kind of trouble to uh, struggle to kind of reckon with those relationships and kind of um it's almost like he doesn't kind of appreciate them until after the fact certainly his his, his relationship with Wilfred Owen I think there was a little bit of that going on and and then uh, later his <laughs> very uh contentious relationship with Ivan Novello which I'm sure we will get onto in a moment because uh, it is like one of the highlights of the film I think but yeah he he just has this kind of lovely um warmth to him I think as an actor and I um I, I it, it's hard because I think Benediction for our listeners it's the kind of film that I would very much hope they would go and seek out but um as a kind of like main you know mainstream um actor it's like I, I personally think yeah he's you know he's more than proven his uh Jews here but um I think there's kind of you know it's like oh is this this too small of a film for it to kind of like really uh you know really announce him but I'm yeah I'm very excited to see where he goes next I think he's wonderful 
It would be good for Terence Davis to have a kind of mega box office hit. That would be, <laughs> yeah. Maybe all the, it would be the his, maybe all the history aficionados will turn out to him. You know, you know how historical fiction and like there are lots of people with Stalingrad on their shelves. Maybe all those people that <laughs> love history will show up for Terence Davis. Yeah, you'd hope. You'd hope that they they, they would come uh, through. Uh, yeah. Listeners, yeah, tell your dads, tell your mums, <laughs> yeah, yeah. tell your grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, then, just as Hannah alluded to that, they're they're like, I guess that what we've discussed so far might translate as rather dismal, morose, <laughs> and morose. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is certainly an aspect of that in the film, but the film is also has a quite a large amount of levity and, 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 and sort of cattiness to it. <laughs> Certainly oh, yeah. it does. Well, as soon as Iva turns up. Sorry, we're no, just, just falling go, over go. ourselves to start gassing about what Jeremy Irving's another is it Jeremy Irving yeah Jeremy Irvine Jeremy Irvine um, is another kind of young British talent that I have probably seen in things but War Horse never, never made much of an impression exactly War Horse um, so it was delightful to see him kind of getting a, a good meaty role to sink his teeth into quite quite literally yeah. he's so biting if he was any cattier he would be an actual cat <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important to say about the film structurally is that although it's it's you know book ended with great flurries of sadness and loss um the, there is a long middle stretch which is basically like the young gay men of high society who were protected from their, you know, the, the law. fact the law by by the fact of their their richness and kind of living quite an out life within quite a niche, just being very catty to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there's a stretch of it that's just kind of like a comedy of, of sexual manners. Um, yeah. And yeah, Jeremy Irvine is just being a real little bitch about things. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's wrap up now and um, and give some scores. Um, Sophie, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah. Uh, okay. so, oh, just to remind our listeners, mm. actually, on the on the score structures, it's out of five. It's um, anticipation, yeah. enjoyment, and in retrospect. Yeah. Okay. So, anticipation five for Terry, enjoyment five for Terry, in retrospect four for Terry. Just because it wasn't like my top tier Terry's, the long day closes. House of Murph, The Deep Blue Sea. Those are my top tier Terry's. And it, it didn't tumble them, but four for Terry. It didn't so tumble it, the top tier Terry's. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. It's a four purely by his own Herculean and extraordinary standards. The phrase is hoisted on your own petard. I was just thinking that. And the great phrase, yeah. Mm. Poor Terry. <laughs> He's I think he'll, good. he'll be all right with five five four. Yeah. <laughs> what, what were you going to go for? Um, it's, I think it's fours across the board for me. Terence Davis isn't actually someone I've had that much kind of um, familiarity with. I have quite a few of his films that I've not seen, so um, very much liked it a lot. Have definitely thought about it a lot since I saw it back in October, and. Um, it definitely made me kind of want to get on the, the Terry train. <laughs> so. Please board at the Long Day Closes Central. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks very much. That's Benediction out uh, in cinemas now. Uh, seek it out. What are your scores, hon? Oh, my scores? Oh, you don't need to hear my scores. Yes. You know my scores. Uh, five, five, five. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm just repping for Terry whenever I can. <laughs> in, 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 in as extreme as way as I can. So, you know. Well, he has made you a cup of tea in the past, so you've yeah. drunk the Kool-Aid. I have, I have been to his house and interviewed him there. He made you a cup of tea. He made me a cup of tea and he had these like, very cute slippers mm. on. 
uh, <laughs> he's got deep shag carpets <laughs> and uh, yeah um, that's a story for another day, <laughs> day. Um, next up we're back on the quasette with Michelle Hasnavicious's final cut Final Cut, a.k.a. Coupe, involves the filming of a Z-grade horror, which turns into disaster. The technical team are jaded and the actors are elsewhere. Despite its paltry budget, the director, Remy, seems motivated to carry out this zombie film and refuses to shout cut. However, in the middle of filming, the team is attacked by the real undead. So... I guess I'm, I'm going to give a little intro to this one. Take it away, so, yeah. Sophie and I went and saw this one last night at the at the big opening ceremony, which was a an episode of Pomp and Pageantry <laughs> uh, with Virginia Ephra in a um, sort of... Disco dance, ball gown. Disco ball gown. That's a very good description of it. Doing a little bit of... Uh, like doing that thing where you lean up on a piano and doing sort of chanteuse singing... Um, we had um, a very long and uh, speech by the head of the jury, Vincent Landon, your friend. My f- close personal friend. And, <laughs> and soon-to-be lover. And uh, yes, the, 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 the president of, um, of Ukraine uh, cropped up as well, yeah. which, was, uh, which was quite a, a moment to, and as a surprise as well. I just want to know how those negotiations went. How how did Thierry pitch it? I think it's quite funny because there were all those rumours. Well, no, no, he wasn't at the Oscars. Oh. Famously, he he wasn't at the Oscars. Oh, sorry, I don't watch the Oscars. Uh, no, no, it's very funny because there was all this like talk about how the Oscars wanted him to do a little speech and he didn't because obviously he was had more important things to do. So mm-hmm. I thought it was very funny that he can as where he uh, decided to kind of plant his flag in the ground. But I guess also they a lot this year they have kind of gone to an effort with like yeah. Ukraine in the program and things. So. Okay. Maybe next, hopefully next week we'll be able to bring you a few Ukrainian titles that we've managed to pick up. I know there are a couple kind of on the fringes in the in the acid section, which is kind of a bit a little bit more off the grid than, mm. than, than, the, than the usual sections. But yeah, we'll we'll try and seek those out. Anyway, back to Final Cut. So this is this is uh, the return of, of Michael Hasnavicius. Just for those who don't know, he. Um, he won the Best Picture Oscar for the artist in twenty in twenty eleven, and he was he was like the the, the 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 greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, he was he was bringing the magic of cinema to the masses, and uh, you know, getting people excited about silent film. And he you know he kind of couldn't do no wrong. And then and then he sort of succumbs to sort of not quite second album syndrome, but maybe second, third, fourth album syndrome <laughs> where. He, he just hasn't been able to sort of not recapture that magic but really kind of make a connection with an audience in the same way like I, I don't think people saw him as like maybe 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 that the artist was a bit of a fluke um, <laughs> I don't want to you know sorry sorry to say that so he he came back with a very earnest film uh, like very sort of politi- politically fronted film called The Search which kind of came into Cannes and, and kind of bombed uh, and then he came back again with a film called Redoutable, which was, to my mind, rather a tin-eared take on the uh, sort of midlife of director Jean-Luc Godard, which is rather, which was kind of very archly dismissive of a lot of his work, and it seemed like a very strange thing for someone like him to be punching down to someone like 
Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> That's quite um, funny. Not seen the film, but <laughs> no, it's, it's quite funny. It's, it's a flex, but you know. Um, <laughs> and then he did a little family film called The Lost Prince, which didn't really travel beyond f- French borders. And, and now he's back with a remake of a Japanese film called One Cut of the Dead. And One Cut of the Dead is from 2017. It's kind of a zero-budget zombie film. Or that's what it kind of wants you to think it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, It starts off with... uh, Where you're watching a kind of meta-zombie film where some people are making a zombie film and zombies invade the set. So you get this kind of quite fun setup. And it's very kind of crunky and no, and the whole thing is that it's made with no budget. And then in the in the second half of the film, you it you you basically pull back and you see how that thirty minute single cut section was actually made, like how how the filmmakers made the film. So it's kind of film and making of, and it's very much sort of focused on the uh, you know cinema as a kind of as a, as a a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As a, as a toil and as, as a, even a, as a sort of small miracle in a way that you're able to actually engage these groups of people and coalesce them into this sing, singular vision. Um... So, on to this remake, Sophie. I'll, I'll 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 go straight to you and ask your thoughts. Um, did it Did it hit for you? It It was a It was a the mildest of possible hits for me. I would say, and um, I don't know if listeners are aware, but it, the tradition is that can opening films are like very very bad. So you come in with quite low expectations. <laughs> The first time I came to Cannes, I queued for two and a half hours to see Grace of Monaco. So the bar, the bar is low, um, and so for me, it, it did sail over that low bar. I think I, I think it had a, a good heartedness to it, and that good heartedness was epitomised by Romain Duress, who plays this B movie director. His shtick is that his movies are cheap, fast, and decent. You know, he's not got any airs and graces. This is this is it, this is like 
filmmaking not as some like grand auditorial practices it's like a kind of you know just get it done however and um I enjoyed seeing filmmaking portrayed in that way I enjoyed seeing filmmaking portrayed as just solving problem after problem after problem I like that it's demystified because I think a lot of the time in our industry it's like here is this genius he emerged from the womb a genius and he conducted this film into being by sheer force of his gaze and this is like no 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 (laughs) it's just it's just like people just you know like making it work and it doesn't work the way that they think it will but it comes together anyway and it like you say it's a small miracle so yeah I found it I found it I found it to be good-hearted in that respect. I found it to have a vision of filmmaking that I, I found that is not the usual way that filmmaking is depicted by movies about movies. Um, so yeah, I had a decent time. Not all of the jokes hit. There was some scatological humour that I could have done without. Um, but a few of them hit. Uh, shout out to the actor who plays the sound guy, Fartir. Um, he he had incredible immaculate comic timing and um, <laughs> Roman Duras running around in a Hawaiian shirt that was always a joy to behold so yeah there were some pleasures to it for me and I know David that you d- you don't feel quite that way so tell us how oh, you really feel I don't disagree I I, I think like um, I, I'm so enamoured with the the Japanese version that that this this one was a sort of bitter bitter pill to swallow and I think. <laughs> Even even for it to get a pass, it would have had to have been very good and very like worthwhile, and it be very obvious why this has been why he has chosen to do this and what he was going to bring to it and add to it. And he he, he hasn't added much. I mean, he's there, there are cut. So so to give you an idea of the relationship of this film, um, this is actually that they make a joke of the fact in this film that he's being like he's this French director is being asked to remake the, the Japanese one after it had been a hit. And it, it doesn't actually make sense. Like, <laughs> like that, that, that idea that you then, you know, re, like, it's a bit of a head scratcher because the film is very kind of, you know, almost Charlie Kaufman-esque film within a film within a film. Um, so having this extra, extra added layer, if you actually sort of stand back and think about the idea that they would remake this film, it don't, and then it all go wrong for them as well, it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> but you know that that's that's the kind of the sort of central hook, and and they um, he's he's had to bring some new elements to it as well, as you say. It's the there is some quite. Um, broad humour added <laughs> and a few little kind of sentimental backstories for some of the characters. Um, I think that one of the things that for me just, just didn't work about this film is it's very, um, it's the, the, the original worked so well because it was made with like zero money. And I think that the key to it, the key to it's kind of jo- the joyousness of it is that here, here's what you can do with nothing. His, you know, you may you may not have like resources. You may not have, um, t- you know, even talented people to work with. But actually, you know, you don't need money to make this kind of mini miniature masterpiece. And it's even you know when you see how it's made, it becomes even greater than than what what we what we see what, what the viewer is supposed to see on screen. But instantly, like the way that this is shot in kind of this sort of grainy, almost Tarantino esque style um it it just it's very like this isn't this doesn't feel right 
it doesn't it just like it's like this shouldn't feel like expensive this shouldn't feel like these people know what they're doing because it kind of get you know having any kind of budget is sort of anathema to the central kind of concept of the of the original film so I mean you know maybe that sounds a bit like nitpicking but well I think I don't know that Hasn Vicious is a details guy I think he might be more of a sweep it like sweeping guy um, but also I just looked up the name of the actor who plays Fartier with the perfect comic timing and it is Jean-Pascal Zaddy mm. did you like Fartier? I thought he was very funny yeah he I mean it, there are a lot of little kind of cutaways to like it's what it's got humour the, the, the sort of source of its humour is these kind of little cutaways to, to sort of how the different uh, members of the team like the producers and the production designers and the, and the runners are all reacting to these these um, moments in the film and yeah it, it kind of he's he's doing like a live score and it keeps kind of cutting back to him and he's just like what the hell's going on guys have <laughs> yeah. no idea what to do and I think like one of the it's both a pleasure and it's a pleasure that doesn't quite land of of this film it is like it's like a structural thing and um, I don't want to say too much about that because I think it's it's nice to watch it be revealed um, but it's like seeing things from one perspective and then seeing things from another perspective. And I think if that had been done really well, it would have been deeply satisfying. But I, I think that maybe certain aspects were signposted a bit too far in advance. And when they were delivered, they were not quite funny enough. But then there are certain performances that just, I thought, were pretty perfect. Um, and I think Roman Duress and I think uh, Jean-Paul Zaddy were excellent. Bernice Peugeot... She was fine. She did some good uh, kicking people in the head. <laughs> High fly kicking. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I also thought that uh, Finnegan Oldfield. Yeah. Lo- love that name. He was in Bang Gang. Yeah, yeah. The um, sex film by yeah. Eva Husson. <laughs> he's been in a couple of yeah. He's been in a couple of sort of te- films as teen terror. And here he plays a kind of a guy that they're describing as the French Adam Driver and. Uh, <laughs> Um, not not entirely evident. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, it's. Um, uh, I, I, you know, he's he's. Everyone's very game. Yeah. I, I would say they, they they kind of they get the the tone and the tenor of, of what's happening here. And I mean, while that's kind of good in it, it makes the film feel cohesive in its own world. It just it's, it it also makes it feel more throwaway. Like it, it they're playing it at like the the character the actors are playing it as fast. Whereas, like, in the original, it's, like, almost a, a realist film. We get it. You love the yeah, original. No, One more thing. For the original. It was nice to see Matilda Lutz, who's the star of Coralie Fargay's revenge, revenge film, Revenge. Uh, it was nice to see her in, like, another, like, genre film. This is more of a comedy than Revenge, which was very much not. But, it, like, she gets to be blood splattered again. She gets to be a sort of like a final girl who's not exactly what you expect so yeah nice to see Matilda Lutz oh good 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 yeah I wasn't uh, I wasn't really aware of what she'd been in before but yeah no she was she was fun yeah um, so let's go like Hannah Hannah was uh, unable to catch this one um so we won't go to her for comment on this one <laughs> but um Hannah are you, are you going to try and see it or not based on what you've just heard I think when it makes its way out of Cannes to the real world, I, I might watch it. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's funny because on paper it sounds like something I should really love, but I mean, it, 
if if I wanted to watch it, you know, it's like I would watch the original, you know? I, I just don't, I don't, I, and it's that kind of thing with remakes of um, foreign language films. It's like, oh, well, but but why? <laughs> like, that's always my kind of like, um, you know, kind of the thing I come back to. I just don't, I don't really, I think there's there's very few occasions where I've been genuinely kind of blighted by a remake. The only one I can think of off the top of my head is probably The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, you're, you're wearing a Psycho t-shirt. <laughs> that is a remake, a Psycho remake. I, yeah, but I'm doing that ironically. <laughs> I, I think that in the future, when these remakes happen or when they're about to happen, you, the director or some someone who someone with the desire to do it has to be asked why yeah. five times. And if they can give a, a good answer five times, a good different answer five mm. times, then they're allowed to go to go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with That's that. That's the new rule. Okay. Yeah. How are you going to circulate that rule to the relevant parties? <laughs> oh, I well, won't throw they're, they're listening to the podcast. Okay. They know. <laughs> yeah, we'll be listening in. They'll know what to do. Okay. Um, do you want to go give some scores to this? Yeah. Um, anticipation, two, two. Enjoyment, three. In retrospect, three. I'm probably two, two, three, two. Hmm. I, I mean, it, you know, it was a kind of fine thing while I was watching. It's a bit of fun. It's evaporated now. <laughs> right, let's get on to our final film then, which is Pietro Marcello's Scarlet. Scarlet concerns the emancipation of a woman over 20 years between 1919 and 1939, a time of great inventions and great dreams. Um, Han. We are kind of fresh from seeing this screening this morning. Mm. Um, it was playing in the director's fortnight strand. Could you maybe give us a little, uh, maybe a little sort of more detail on that quite cryptic synopsis? <laughs> and also, could you tell us a bit, maybe start by telling us what the director's fortnight is and, and why it's important? Uh yeah, the, the the director's fortnight is, um, well, the Quinzain, to give it its uh, French title, is the one of the sidebars at Cannes. And um, it's kind of got this reputation for programming the first features of a lot of incredibly famous directors. And they have this amazing ident every year, which uh, is like the biggest flex of them just like, flashing up the names of all the peoples uh, that have had their films playing directors fortnight so um you know people like martin scorsese people like um joanna hogg yeah, yeah chantal ackerman and uh, the safety brothers you know it's like jim jarmish um David Lynch. yeah it's you know it's it's got a, a very storied history within um the film festival and generally has like a very strong program I mean you're always bound to kind of find something you like in there it's more kind of like would you say that whereas the competition gives you the kind of star-spangled big bangers of, mm. of world cinema the Kanzen is more of kind of you know for those tra- travelers who want to like go a bit deeper yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I think it is like um, I don't know, almost maybe kind of a more like um, curious audience. Not to like that sounds like a diss to the kind of um, competition films, but um, yeah. I mean, you'll get stuff like the Lighthouse premiered there, which is obviously is kind of a big like starry film, even though it's only got two stars in it. Um, 
but then you'll get a lot of stuff that has not been on anyone's radar and just kind of pops up and I think this year is certainly the case there's only um I think maybe two big titles in there like there's uh, Ennis Main which is a new film from Mark Jenkin and then they're doing a special screening of Alex Garland's Men everything else is kind of a little bit of no a... no no Mia Hansen oh love. sorry yeah, I forgot Mia was in there because I don't don't you be forgetting no, Mia no I don't really think it makes sense that she's in there but I mean I've not seen the film yet so I don't mm. know yeah, yeah. it seems a bit strange as someone who was in competition last year it's like well why is she now in director's fortnight I don't know anyway she's in... a woman <laughs> yeah, she was lucky well to make it into the competition <laughs> now... director's fortnight definitely goes you know has compared to the competition goes for sort of gender parity parity sorry and uh and definitely more of a mix in terms of geography as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I've said quite a lot now about the director's fortnight. Um, but yeah, I mean, Pietro Marcello obviously um, has been kind of working away for a relative number of years. He's made about four or five films yeah. now. But Martin Eden was his big kind of like breakout. Um, I can't remember where that premiered. It might have been Venice. here. But was it Venice? Oh, okay. Yeah. That, so it premiered at Venice and um, I saw it at Toronto Film Festival a few weeks later and it kind of did, um, got a lot of plaudits. Uh, Luca Marinelli was kind of a breakout heartthrob. And um, yeah, so I think it's it was nice to see him opening um, Director's Fortnight this year. And Director's Fortnight, unlike... The, the main selection tends to actually have quite good opening films. <laughs> so um, I didn't know anything about this going in. I was just very kind of like, yeah, like Marcello, go and see it, see what it's about. And um, was kind of utterly charmed. Um, very nondescript title could could mean anything, but um, it's based on a short story or a, a story uh, by the Russian author... Um, Alexander Grin, is that yeah. how you pronounce it? Yeah, okay. Just spent five minutes looking at his name, but but still. Um, and it's this very sweet kind of a, a, a fairy tale about a, a young woman who comes from incredible poverty and is told one day a ship will come with scarlet sails to whisk you away. And um, yeah, the film is just kind of about her and her family navigating these kind of trials and tribulations of being um, a member of the working class and it's been kind of transposed to the French countryside in post-World War One. yeah um, and it has this <laughs> incredible uh, actor at the forefront whose name I'm, I'm gonna just Raphael Thierry or who plays her father in the film he's got this incredible face just one of the like just a face you love looking at <laughs> that's all I can all I can think of how to describe it and he plays her um coming back from the war father who is incredibly talented at woodwork but can't catch a break and it's just a a very um sweet very kind of uh I think it like it sneaks up on you almost. You're kind of like, oh yeah, this is charming, and then you know you get about midway and you're like, oh, I'm I'm having such a lovely time with this. I uh, it looks beautiful as all his films kind of do, and 
Uh, I was even not opposed to the singing, and there's quite a lot of singing in this film, more than I expected. Um, but yeah, just a kind of very um, pleasant, mildly political uh, romance, really, is how I would describe it. Also, one thing, one thing as well to 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 say is, it's kind of it it kind of follows. And I mean, is there a lead character in this film? Is it because because I guess that the the you, you're you're supposed to think of it the daughter as the main character, but then is is how how important is the father? And but I think they have equal billing because this has a sprawl. You know, it covers twenty years. And he starts off as the focus and she emerges as the focus. And overall, I think it, it balances out, you know. And in terms of the period that the, ti- that the film covers, it, it, without wanting to spoil anything, it, it, it's, the, it's the best of their time together. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think, it's a t- I think it's a double-hander, even Stevens, I say. And it's quite, like, I think one of the things that I, I personally dug about it is that it's, it's a very kind of... It, it do, it doesn't ju- even though it's a film about the toils of the working class, it doesn't spend its entire runtime leveling abject misery on them. Well, it, I think it does spend the entire time leveling abject misery on them, but it shows how through their own ingenuity, through their own love, through their own skills, like Raphael is an incredible artisan. He's gifted uh, crafting. Anything out of wood, anything you like, Jenks. Uh, you want a figure figurehead for a ship? He'll he'll do you one. You want a toy for your infant child? Not a problem for Raphael. <laughs> so he like, he shows the consolations for the fact that they are hit by quite a lot of bad luck. Um, I think I think that um, one of the consola- one of those consolations is is their kind of little community they build. They have this kind of found family of um, obviously Raphael and his daughter Juliet, but also. They live with um, Madame Adeline. Madame Adeline. I'm not sure quite what the relationship is to um, to the family, but yeah, they live with this very kind of um, no nonsense woman called Madame Adeline, and then a blacksmith and his wife and their young daughter, and it's um, kind of a little bit Dickens esque. Um, <laughs> you know that they're kind of getting through things together and uh, dealing with the local hoodlums who kind of um, just bother them for no reason constantly um but it's you know it's, it's very sweet just seeing how despite all that kind of misery they're able to kind of pick each other up constantly and um I liked the kind of elements of like a little bit of like the light magical realism in there there's this woman who lives in the woods and communes with the frog queen and um she's the one who kind of prophesizes about uh the ship with the sails and um I was very, very here for that. I think there's just not enough kind of whimsy in my life sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, what makes it actually quite a political film is the way that it's shot. Um, It made me think a little bit of Agnes Varda's The Gleaners and I, because she tries to, in that documentary, what she does is she looks at gleaning, which was something that people who couldn't really afford to buy food did, which was they collected the apples and the food left behind by the harvest in order to survive and then were depicted in art doing so and this is kind of the same it's like the people that like historically aren't center stage within great works of art are and like the landscape the, the rural landscape that they live in is just shot with constant breathtaking beauty and they are at the center of it 
and that's why like that's what I find that found the most moving like the visual aspect of the way that it was all captured it wasn't oh no look at these hard scrabble people down in the mud it's like no look at these incredibly skilled people uh living off the land and like just like it just looked so good constantly (laughs) it's true I concur with that I I also like during the kind of brief time between uh watching the film and kind of sitting down I I googled who Alexander Green was because I had no idea um the very ignorant woman over here who's not read a book ever um but no he he's a fascinating guy he um this Russian um writer of kind of young adult fantasy in um the early 20th century and was a a socialist in Russia and obviously that didn't go down very well and um kind of penniless all his life died in poverty and had a kind of you know got popular afterwards and was one of uh, Tarkovsky's faves so oh. if that isn't a ringing endorsement you know what, what That's is interesting it does have it does I think with the sort of floaty dresses and the sort of magic hour sh- shots and the kind of lyricism of the countryside and the the, the elemental vibe yeah. of the whole the whole visual aspect of the film you can definitely feel like late um, Tarkovsky. I'm trying to think the sacrifice. Yeah, that's the a nostalgia and yeah, like mirror as well. Or all that. Yeah, definitely. You yeah, can, closes the loop. There's a fire in a house. In, in, oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the, one of the films that actually reminded me of was um, a very. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name check a very obscure film. Or <laughs> well, it's actually a TV series called La Maison de Bois. Do you, do you guys know? I do one? not know this. It's a it's a film by Mo- it's a TV series by Maurice Pilat, the great French filmmaker Maurice Pilat, and about, we won't grow old together, guy. Yeah, exactly. And um, and he and and, and I, it's incredible. It, I don't. It's hard to see, but if you can can see it, do. Uh, and it's about like children um, in world during World War Two going off and living in the countryside away from their parents for safety and rather than focusing on the war, which is complete absence in the film, it focuses on the children's lives, just playing in the, in the countryside and the, the connection they build with the, these kind of new parents, quote-unquote. And it, it has just this sort, of, this, this sort of storytelling verve and simplicity of like the drama and how it kind of constantly rotates back to these little kind of motifs and symbols and objects that are kind of imbued with like major importance and it's uh it's just really moving i mean i found this super moving i was uh sniffing a few times, you were so. sniffling yeah yeah i, I, I uh <laughs> better I, than the noises some other members of the audience yeah. were making <laughs> I, I thought when uh, Raphael was varnishing the uh his oh. figurehead the beautiful scene that um, I'm that was that got me. I would love to know about. I think an in, a, a speaking to the, the craft team on this film would be amazing because there are so many beautiful shots of woodworking, and it I would be fascinated to know if Raphael, the actor, had to learn kind of how to whittle. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it made me want to whittle, as I <laughs> well, can't, I've never whittled in my life. We, we need to whittle down this podcast. <laughs> So, so, well, link. so smooth because we got we got we got screens to see we got stuff to write okay so <laughs> let's let's quickly do some scores then before we uh, round off so sophie um actually no let's go hannah because you you've, yeah hannah can go first on this one uh, i think it's a three four three but my caveat is that it could possibly go up to a four i mean i just don't want to you know 
be handing out those fours willy-nilly <laughs> at, the, at the first day. This is my first film on the festival. I don't want to be starting off like that. But, you know... We, I, can, we, can, we can come back to that next week. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I am, like, you know, I'm feeling good about it now, I will say. 444. Four, four. It was going to be 443, four, but then as we talked about it, I was appreciating it more and more and more. Like, I think I liked the first half an hour a bit more than I liked the rest of it, just purely mm. because of tempo. Like, it has a very strong, captivating rhythm for the first half hour, and it gets a little bit looser as it progresses. Um, so, I'm doing the opposite of Hannah. I'm going 444, four, four, but it might switch to 443. Four, <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd be inclined to give it, like, very high scores. Um, I, I, I loved it, um, and I, I was, it was something. I, I maybe maybe like four in anticipation, and then like five for enjoyment, and then uh, do you know what? I, I I think I need to like hold back. I'll, I'll go for four four in retrospect, just because I, I I yeah I may may revise it. We're all week. being so cagey about but our I mean, in retrospect. We've literally just seen it, so yeah. I feel that we are we are allowed to kind of get out clause yeah. on, on, on this specific thing. Before we finish as well, can I, I I've got to shout out another great Louis Garrel as a charming rake with a little mustache performance. I, it gets me every time. I just love seeing that guy do he, his thing. He plays an adventurer. Yeah, a literally an adventurer. That's, That's not a real thing. <laughs> it was incredible. Well, I'm going to shout out the poor behaviour of the man seated <laughs> slightly to the left of me and Hannah. And there was a little bit of a sex scene and he released the most disgustingly sensual moans while that sex scene was happening. Which may have been related or may not have been related, but it was very poor timing. <laughs> I, I have my suspicions. Yeah. Yes, that, that, I it found was, that very yeah. disturbing. Well, okay. Yeah. Curb, curb your dis- disturbingness. <laughs> and uh, we're going to ask listeners to contact us with any thoughts they've got on this week's films via Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com or tweet us at Little White Lies. Next week, Hannah and I will be back giving, uh, raking over the entire. Uh, sorry. Next week, Hannah and I will be back giving over the entire episode to reporting on new films from Cannes. We've got David Cronenberg, Claire Denis, Baz Luhrmann, many, many more. Thank you for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me this week, David Jenkins, and my guests were Hannah Strong and Sophie Monks-Kaufman. This podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Jake Cunningham.